Hi, I'm Jason. And I'm Scott. Welcome to Skipped On Shuffle, a podcast where we delve into an overlooked song by a popular artist. In today's episode, we're going to talk about the song Nobody's Fault But Mine by Otis Redding off of his 1968 album, The Immortal Otis Redding. We're here to talk about Nobody's Fault But Mine by Otis Redding, not to be confused by the Led Zeppelin tune of the same name or the many other tunes by the same name, but uh, we're going to get into that. But it is kind of ironic in a, in a way that uh, that I say the words, you know, Nobody's Fault But Mine, and a lot of music fans would immediately think of Led Zeppelin. And that's kind of a microcosm of of Otis Redding's career, like in general, <laughs> like, and I, and I, it sucks to say that, but that's kind of what we're going to touch on a lot through this episode is that Otis is kind of superseded by so many other things. So the point that he's always kind of like in second place, which is very sad because he was such a, 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 a genius and an icon of sixties and, you know, sixties uh, and, and even, I guess like kind of late fifties music. And, uh, yeah, it's just it's just very strange to sort of think to myself like, oh, the song that we're doing today is actually a more famous, you know, Led Zeppelin tune. And that kind of just fits in with the Otis Redding thing, I guess. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned respect and you think Aretha Franklin. You mentioned hard to handle and you'll think of the Black Crows. There's just always kind of another version or something out there that, yeah, your your mind kind of goes to first. And then you're like, the, the, your second thought is, oh, yeah, Otis Redding like, wrote that. Or <laughs> so, yeah, it's um, kind of an interesting uh, life, especially for someone just around such a short amount of time, but uh, had this pretty impressive career. And I, I don't know, in, in doing this episode, I mean, I love Otis Redding, but it was just really staggering how much he did in such a short amount of time and it's and it's always one of those things of like where where else could it have gone um you know given another decade or so of of being around but at least we have what we have and also uh it should just be noted that this song nobody's fault but mine comes on one of his posthumous releases we'll talk about that more in a minute and first, we'll talk about the very interesting life of Otis Redding and how he came into the spotlight. Otis Redding Jr. was born in the small town of Dawson, Georgia, to Otis Redding Sr. and Fanny Roseman in 1941. The family moved to Macon, Georgia when Otis was two when his father got a job working at an Air Force base there. Redding joined the choir at Vineville Baptist Church at a young age. He also learned to play guitar and piano at the church. Around the age of 10, he would take singing lessons and even take up the drums. He earned money as a kid singing gospel songs on a local radio station on Sundays. When he reached high school, he joined the school band, 
but at the age of 15, Redding would leave school to work and help support the family. His father had tuberculosis and was often ill, leaving only his mother to work, so Otis took a number of jobs, including as a gas station attendant, while making some money as a musician, sometimes playing piano with Gladys Williams, a local performer. Otis got his first break competing in a weekly talent show for teens at the Douglas Theater, an entertainment venue in town. With a $5 prize, Redding would go on to win the prize 15 weeks in a row before the organizers would no longer allow him to compete. It was part of these competitions where he met Johnny Jenkins, a guitarist of some note in the region, who offered to play with Redding. With Jenkins, he joined Pat T. Cake and the Mighty Panthers and toured the Chitlin Circuit, venues that accepted African Americans during racial segregation, before becoming the frontman for the Upsetters, Little Richard's backing band, which Richard had left for a time to return to gospel music as a solo artist. After leaving the Upsetters, Redding would sign with Confederate Records, a small label out of Athens, Georgia. He would record a single, Shout Bama Lama, Let's Take a Listen. Okay, hold it, hold it right down there. Hold, hold, hold it. He's down in Alabama. In the meantime, Johnny Jenkins joined the Pine Toppers, and he worked as a driver for the band, driving Jenkins, who didn't have a license to stack records in Memphis, Tennessee, to record. Jenkins was backed by Booker T and the MGs, but the session didn't go well, and there was extra studio time. So Redding recorded two of his songs, one of which was These Arms of Mine. Let's listen to that now. These arms of mine Jimmy Stewart, one of the co-founders of Stack Records, was in the studio when Otis was recording and immediately signed him to the label. These Arms of Mine would be released as a single and later appear on Redding's 1964 debut album, Pain in My Heart. That debut was a mix of songs written by Redding and covers. While the album was well-received critically, it only reached 103 on the charts, and many of the singles reached modest spots on the R&B and pop charts, including the title track, which further showcased Redding's ability to deliver heartfelt ballads. Here's Pain in My Heart. Pain in my heart is treating me cold. Where can my baby be? Lord, no one knows. Pain in my heart just won't let me sleep. Redding followed this up with The Great Otis Redding Sings Soul Ballads in March 1965. As with the first record, it was a mix of covers and originals and featured the first writing collaboration between guitarist Steve Cropper, who was part of Booker T and the MGs, the Stax House Band, and Redding. That song was Mr. Pitiful, which Cropper was inspired to write after hearing a comment by a DJ about how pitiful Redding sounded on the many ballads he sang. The record wasn't as warmly accepted or charted as high as his debut, but a number of Redding singles climbed the pop and R&B charts. Things would quickly change later in 1965 when Otis put out Otis Blue or Otis Redding Sings Soul. 
It featured mostly covers and it hit number one on the R&B charts in the U.S. and number six in the U.K. Otis Blue is widely considered his best record by critics and found more commercial success in his previous two records with his singles performing well on the pop charts. It's hard to pick just one from this album to listen to, so we'll do two. First, let's hear I've Been Loving You Too Long, an incredibly moving soul ballad that reached 21 on the Hot 100 charts and number two on the R&B charts. I've been loving you too long to stop now. You attacked and you want to be free. My love is going Next, let's listen to Respect, which is a song certainly more widely known from Aretha Franklin's recording, as we mentioned at the top of the episode, uh, that she did two years later, making it all her own. But here's Otis's version. While Redding is credited with writing Respect, its origins are a little unclear. Yeah, that's an interesting thing because obviously Respect is one of the biggest songs ever. So, you know, you would think that there would be all this research and history into like how it was written, when it was written, where it was recorded, all these things. But really, yeah, we we don't really have a, a solid grip on who actually wrote the main lines of the song. So the story goes is that uh, a, a guitarist by the name of Speedo Sims brought the song to Redding and was like, hey, check out this riff. And Redding was like, hey, that's pretty good. Where did that come from? But Speedo Sims couldn't remember. And then there's all these people that have said like, oh, I remember, you know, this riff came from so-and-so and this riff came, but nobody can actually say for a definitive fact who came up with this like main line. And I'm not talking about just, just like the, the basic chord structure of the song, but actually some of the lyrics too were part of this thing that Speedo Sims gave to Redding. So Redding took it and he's the sole songwriter if you look in the you know the the the, the music industry you know uh, catalogs and stuff like it's Otis Redding is the sole songwriter attached to the thing but really it was kind of taken from this other guy Speedo Sims who probably should have a co-writing credit on there but he doesn't um, yeah so it's it's just it's it's very fascinating to know that there's this song that literally you know pretty much everybody knows the main refrain for and no one knows who actually wrote it so that's that's a little side note for you. <laughs> With Redding's growing success, he became one of the first black soul singers to perform at a rock club in the Western U.S., playing to great acclaim at the Whiskey A Go-Go in L.A. in April 1966. Over 1966, Redding would release two more albums, The Soul Album, and Complete and Unbelievable, The Otis Redding Dictionary of Soul. There's a lot of great songs between the two, but let's listen to Try a Little Tenderness off of the latter.
in addition to everything else that year, Redding would head off to Europe to tour later in 1966. He would return to the studio in 1967 with singer Carla Thomas to make the duet album King and Queen. Inspired by Marvin Gaye's duets with Tammy Terrell and Kim Weston, Jim Stewart felt Stax could do the same with Redding and Thomas. While the majority of the record was recorded together, Redding had to overdub some of his parts later on due to touring. Thomas herself was also rather busy studying for her master's degree at the time in English at Howard University in Washington, D.C. King and Queen was well-received, and it showcased a great dynamic between the two singers, as you can hear on Tramp, which hit number two on the R&B charts and 26 on the Hot 100. Let's take a listen. Tramp. What you call me? Tramp. Well, you, did. you don't wear continental clothes or Stetson hats. But I'll tell you one doggone thing. It makes me feel good to know one thing. I know... Redding would also release a live album, Live in Europe, that same year. However, the most notable performance he would give in 1967 would be at the Monterey Pop Festival, where Redding closed out the second night. Otis delivered an electrifying performance, and that's saying something when you have Hendrix setting a guitar on fire there and all the other amazing acts. But his engagement with the crowd, remember he'd performed mostly for black audiences at that time, showed he could have mainstream success with white listeners. While later that year he'd be sidelined by surgery to remove polyps on his larynx, he was back in the studio by December and recording lots of new material. Later that month, performing in Cleveland and next flying to Wisconsin, Redding was with the Bar K's, the backing band that had been coached by Booker T and the MGs and been playing on his gigs through 1967 on a plane flight. The weather was bad and the plane went down in Lake Monona, killing Redding and four members of the band, along with a valet and the pilot, four miles from the airfield they were due to land at. Redding's body was found the next day and buried at his ranch in Round Oak, about 20 miles away from Macon, Georgia. It had been three days before Redding had basically finished his next record, The Dock of the Bay. While there were some concerns about the sound of the record as Redding moved towards pop and having been influenced by hearing the Beatles' Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band, he intended to finalize the record and its title track, but obviously never got the chance. His longtime guitarist and co-writer Steve Cropper helped complete the record. Sitting on the Dock of the Bay was released as a single in January 1968, with the album of the same name coming out the following month. Let's listen to that classic track here. Sitting in the morning sun I'll be sitting when the evening comes Watching the ships roll in And then I'll watch them roll away again Yeah, I'm sitting on the dock of the bay Watching the tide It went to number one on the Hot 100 and was the first posthumous single to do so. The song would go on to win Redding two Grammys, one for Best R&B Vocal Performance and another for Best R&B Song. With some recordings stretching back to 1965, the album was the first of a few posthumous releases from Redding. The next record was the immortal Otis Redding, released in June 1968, which we'll talk about today since our song, Nobody's Fault But Mine, was released on that one. There were two more releases over the next two years, 1969's Love Man and 1970's Tell the Truth, along with live records, including one that documented his performances at the Whiskey A Go-Go. For the completists out there, there was a fifth posthumous record, Remember Me, that came out in 1992 with a variety of recordings from 63 to 67. 
Redding is obviously now considered one of the greatest singers in American music. He was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1989 and received a Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award a decade later in 1999, among many other accolades. But let's go back to shortly after his tragic death and take a closer look at the immortal Otis Redding and nobody's fault but mine. We hope you're enjoying this episode of Skipped on Shuffle. Right about now, in most podcasts, you'd be hearing an ad for something, uh, but we are trying to keep Skipped on Shuffle ad-free, and the way we're going to be able to do that is through Patreon. Please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash skipped on shuffle. Any donations go to support the costs associated with running this podcast. With the record that this song appears on, the immortal Otis Redding, this was a posthumous record, and and that's something that we're kind of used to nowadays. We're used to the idea that an artist dies and there's like a back catalog of material, demos, other related stuff like that. And, uh, you know, the studio comes in and puts something together and puts it out. And it's, you know, depending on how it's approached, it can seem like a cash grab. It can seem like, you know, somebody died and and we're going to try to make as much money as possible on it. But what we have to remember is is that this is this is well before that became a thing and as jason mentioned in the in the history there uh this was the first time that there had been a posthumous single that had gone to number 1 like this is like you know this is the first time for a lot of a lot of aspects of what's going on here um and and also remember that uh this is uh almost a decade before elvis dies so elvis dies in 1977 and by then the idea of releasing a, a ton of material after a, a very popular artist dies had become a little bit more commonplace. And most people would agree that when Elvis died, the the, the posthumous releases and the way that it was approached was, 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 was garish, to say the least. It was much more like, this guy's dead. Let's try and make as much money as possible about this. Uh, you know, w- with this news, we can sort of cash in on it. And and that's, but that's not really what was happening here. What happened here was a little bit more, uh, had a little bit more integrity to it. You know, as Jason mentioned, there was only three days left before the record was going to be completed. So it was like, this was a little bit more along the lines of, you know, oh, oh no, this guy died, but we we have enough here to like put this out and that'll be really interesting for the fans and it'll be like kind of a tribute. And even the title, the immortal Otis Redding kind of brings that together being like, oh, like, you know, this is, this is a respectful tribute to this artist and not just like, you know, quick, give us your money. Yeah. I mean, the, the big difference here to think about too, is that Steve Cropper, who, you know, is part of that Stax House band, Booker T and the MGs, and had played for all these years with Redding, wrote with him. He's kind of the guy who's helping oversee this. Because uh, that's one of the big differences, too, with a lot of posthumous records, too. It's like, okay, who owns this stuff? Does it just, you know, is the it's, it's is it the estate who's putting it out? Or is it, you know, people who are actually involved in the making of this? So it's, it's nice that it's Steve Cropper who ends up kind of sitting down and finishing what they had laid out and what they had planned had this you know tragedy not occurred so 
is pretty interesting because the first one, um, the first posthumous record, Doc of the Bay, obviously has amazing success. And I I wonder what would have happened if, you know, they they just put that out and nobody really listened to it. If we would get this additional material, especially so quickly after Redding's death, I think we could kind of imagine that if we were ever to hear this, it would take like years and years and somebody would go back to the vault and be like, oh, it's, you know, the 30th anniversary of his death. Like, what haven't we heard? Uh, But instead, you know, Cropper's like, we have all this great stuff. Clearly people enjoy it and want to hear it and it's nice that he was able to kind of package it in a way uh that didn't feel like we're just kind of scraping (laughs) scraping around to see what we have because when you listen to just kind of on this track of thinking about posthumous releases and things that get released later on i mean just look at like the beatles where they're to the point of okay we're gonna release you know take 13 of the (laughs) song because you know it, it you know, this this was mostly things that people hadn't heard. There were some, you know, re, uh, there were a few recycled things on the, the Dock of the Bay album, but clearly enough to make it feel like its own album and it stands up as well as the earlier material in terms of like there, there, there was more of a direction and it feels more cohesive uh, than, you know, just, OK, here's, you know, 10 to 10 or 12 tracks. Let's just put these together and put it out. So there's a lot more thought here. And I think that helps make, make it a lot more interesting and a lot more meaningful. And I mentioned the love for the, um, Otis blue album. And I feel like the immortal Otis Redding among fans gets like that same level of love and respect since it really showcases the range that Otis Redding had. So the album, if, if we can just kind of take a look at some of the other songs on here, um, starts out with I've got dreams to remember, which is this really heartfelt tune, especially coming after, you know, so, so soon after his death with lyrics that were written by, uh, Redding's wife, Zelma. And interestingly enough, he was originally like, Oh, I'm not going to like do this song or use those lyrics. So I, I believe there's a story and I'm sure there's somebody who's going <laughs> to, who's going to fact check me on this. I don't think she knew that he had re- recorded that song with her lyrics. Um, so, you know, there, there's a lot of special stuff on here that I feel like is, you know, especially heartfelt. There's hard to handle, which is just this like cool, funky tune. And we mentioned at the beginning of the episode, black crows have covered it. So there's people out there who probably think it's an original by, by them. Um, the album closes out with amen. So despite being a kind of traditional spiritual song, uh, for anybody that's listened to, um, take me to church. Uh, there's there's that kind of referenced on there. So it, it's just interesting how the, the as I mentioned, the range of this album, but also like the range of influence here and just kind of I, I don't know. It, it's just sort of an emotional listen when you kind of think about all that and about how soon this came out after his death. At the top of the episode, I mentioned that there's a Led Zeppelin song by the same name, uh, "Nobody's Fault But Mine," and a lot of you know people who listen to this to our to our podcast who are big fans of of music they 
it, probably have heard the, the Led Zeppelin song many, many times as it was one of their more popular tracks, especially live. So, but let's just go into a bit of a history here. So Nobody's Fault But Mine was first recorded by a gospel blues artist by the name of Blind Willie Johnson. And that was in 1927, roughly 40 years before this uh, Otis Redding song by the same name comes out. And in between then, from 1927 to, to 1968, a lot of people had covered the song. It was a pretty famous you know, bluesy track. So the basic, uh, uh, the basic theme of the song is it's about nobody's fault, but mine is referring to, uh, I guess we'll call the narrator, the narrator accepting that the fact that they haven't been reading their Bible and following their Bible's teaching is the reason why they are now, you know, damned to hell. So it's kind of this, you know, kind of bleak track where it's like, I have accepted my fate as a sinner. And the reason that I am, you know, going to be cast away by God is because I haven't been reading my Bible. And thus the song becomes a a, a push for you to be, you know, more connected to your Bible, more connected to God, more connected to Jesus, that kind of thing. So that's kind of the thematic element of this track. And through those years, you know, through those decades before Otis Redding sort of took a riff on it, uh, through those years, people have sort of kept that same kind of element. They might change the tune a little bit. They might change some of the lyrics here, but the basic element of the song kind of stays the same until Otis Redding, you know, who comes along and says, I'm going to take this, this, this theme, this element of the song, keep the title, change the lyrics, change the melody, change everything about it, but still kind of harken back to it. So, and that's, this, this is such a, it's a great, it's a great tune that, that, that we've picked here for this, for the Skipped on Shuffle episode, because this really represents the, the, the true genius of Otis Redding, which was being able not only to create his own material, that was, you know, iconic and and incredibly well written and performed impeccably, but also take other people's material and riff on it to the point where it became something that was truly unique. So it's interesting. He keeps the nobody's fault but mine refrain, but instead of straying from religion and you know the the path to God, instead he sets it up as a, a breakup song essentially, and it's like I've you know, haven't been treating you well and now you're gone and there's nobody to blame but me. So it's it's funny because it, it works so well. And also people, many Otis Redding listeners, as we mentioned, you know, he was at the, at the time of his death starting to cross over into white audiences, but certainly for the gospel listeners and for the soul listeners people would be familiar as scott mentioned with some other iteration of this nobody's fault but mine so it's it's definitely fun that he's tapping into that so aside from that it's a pretty straightforward song especially as far as like the the otis redding you know we we joked in the history about the the or mentioned the steve cropper mr pitiful thing it kind of falls (laughs) and it kind of falls into that category of like oh woe is me like this stuff's happening to me and i got nobody to blame and now you know i'm i'm down and out it starts off i couldn't love you your way yeah and you still came by to see me day by day but now i miss you all the time no heart can be as sad as mine so pretty pretty simple pretty straightforward um but just such a good tune and also with mentioning you know this relationship with steve cropper throughout uh super cool riff in there to start the song off it's just I don't know. It's just a lot of fun. It's one of those songs where despite, yeah, like the, the 
the sadness and heaviness of this like poor guy, you you can't help but like, like you know tap your foot along and nod your head like this guy's having a bad day. But man, this is <laughs> <laughs> well. I think I think it's really interesting what you were mentioning, um, and this is something I hadn't even thought about until you just said it, which is is that crossover that he was going for and how this. This change, and and I obviously this is something that we would never be able to tell if was actually Otis Redding's intention. But this crossover thing of being like, I'm going to take this thematic song that's like iconic for black audiences who are very much used to hearing this type of 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 track. You know, nobody's fault but mine. Straying away from the Bible, that kind of thing, and then sort of tweaking it and making it something that you know traditionally white audiences could connect with. The idea of just like you know breakups and and love lost and all that kind of thing, and then merging them together to make like what is essentially like the purest form of a crossover track. It's like I'm going to take this song, this thematic element, this 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 you know this basic structure of a track. That, that most of my already existing audience knows and then tweak it a little bit to sort of bring in the audience that, you know, that maybe doesn't know me or doesn't, you know, have that kind of connection to the track and bring it all together and make this like, you know, two minute pop song, you know, I, mean, I, I like I said, I, we have no idea if that's actually the case or not, but that's just, that's just perfect. Like, that's perfect. Like, that's just like that. That's something that could only be cooked up by somebody who was completely in tune with what he wanted to do, you know, and Jason mentioned at the, at the beginning of the episode, you know, like what would it have been like if, if this career had continued? And like, that's just, a, that's a, that's another signal that Otis had so much more in him that he could have brought to the table. And, uh, and we, we, we missed out on it, unfortunately, which is, you know, which is very sad, but, uh, but yeah, but I, I, I didn't even make that connection until just now. And you were just like, Oh yeah, this crawl. I was like, Oh yeah. That like, that really makes perfect sense. Like he was like, I'm trying to bring in the white people. I got to tweak. I'm going to tweak this song to make it so that white people could get into it, you know? And I don't want to leave my audience behind because I right. know, you know, who's, who's listening to me. Yeah. Yeah. Trying to be so doggone cool. Ain't nobody fault but mine. I thought I done did it, but I made a big mistake, y'all. I can't remember how old I was when I first heard uh, what what I'll refer to as a factoid, uh, which is how I kind of you know perceived it at the time. Uh, the factoid that Otis Redding died before he got his first number one song and and obviously as jason mentioned in the history he also won several grammys after he died and has won all sorts of accolades after he died but while he was alive otis redding was you know he wasn't poor and he you know he had success he was touring he was playing big shows he was a popular personality and and all that but at the same time he never achieved the level of success that are like uh quantifiable metrics you know like having a number one song uh performing a sold out tour of you know huge huge places or 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 whatever you know whatever those 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 metrics are he never really achieved that at least not during his lifetime so he never got to see or feel what it would be like to have a number one record to, to, to accept a Grammy award on a stage at the podium and, and give a speech thanking, you know, thanking his wife, thanking his people, you know, he never got to do any of that. 
um, which which is sad. And 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 I remember hearing this factoid as a kid and thinking to myself, like, oh, you know, that's a that's a that sucks. You know, that's a sad factoid. It's a it's a sad toy. <laughs> but later on, and, and and throughout my life, I kept coming back to it. And and especially when I because I was in a band and and we were trying to you know make it and do all these things and we were touring and writing material and recording material and we and we had certain amount of achievements but we never achieved anything you know even remotely close to what Otis Redding achieved let alone what you know major artists who have actually had number one songs and stuff like that achieved and and I remember always coming back to this factoid and and thinking to myself like this is like a, a true summation of the music industry and, and how Otis Redding was brilliant. You know, he was an amazing performer, an amazing vocalist, amazing songwriter, just like everything he did was incredible and he never made it. Like, well, I mean, obviously he made it, but, but he never made it to those metrics. He never made it to those, to the heights that he probably deserved to make it. And, and I, and I, I thought about that a lot over the years and always came back to it because I always thought to myself, like the, if if even Otis Redding can't get to these points, then the music industry really is a sham. You know, like it really is a sham. It really is a sham that, you know, there are lesser artists out there that had number one hits and won Grammys, you know, that I, that I could tell you the names of and you probably like, I don't even know that song. I don't know that artist. They had no staying power. They just had a big hit single that resonated with the audience at that time. And then that was it. We've moved on from them and now nobody cares. And the fact that Otis Redding didn't get that kind of like summarized the music industry for me. So whenever I think about Reddit, uh, Otis Redding, I, I, I tend to think about that factoid and how there's this like sadness that kind of permeates through Redding's songs and career that, that is kind of, you, you, can't, you can't move away from. And I, and I don't know, I, I don't know why, why that, that connected with me so much, but I think as a struggling musician and somebody who really wanted to make it and really wanted to like do all these things and never really did, I think, you know, I connect with Reading on those levels. And every, every time I hear, especially the sad ballads, especially the ballads where I feel, you know, Otis Redding is pouring his heart out into this track. You know, I, I just immediately think about the fact that he never got to experience the, the returns from doing that other than, you know, his, his, his own, you know, personal satisfaction for, for creating music that, that really resonated with a lot of people. But yeah, but if there's ever a, a tragedy story in music, obviously there are several, but Otis Redding is probably one of the, the biggest tragedies in music as just being like, here's a guy who in life never got the respect he deserved, you know, after he died. And, and, and it was just, yeah, it, it's just, it just always permeated with me that, that constant sadness through line through his entire career. Yeah. And it's really that heart. I mean, just purely hard work and you, even in the tragedy of his death, you know, it's a plane crash because he's flying around trying to play gigs while, you know, also trying to record all this stuff. And it's just, you know, hard, hard working is what I generally think of in Otis Redding. And I think the best place that really showcases that is the live performances. Not that the performance, not to take anything away from the performances, you know, in the studio on the records, but Damn, Otis Redding playing live is crazy to hear, like just the amount of energy. And one of the best showcases of that is I mentioned in the episode, Otis Redding playing at Monterey Pop. 
And it's funny to think about because there's like all these bands, all this insanity. I mentioned, you know, Hendrix setting his guitar on fire. There's all this stuff that happens. But it's incredible because Otis Redding comes out. He closes out the second night. As we talked about in the episode, he hadn't played for a lot of white audiences at that time. So it it's just an interesting dynamic to see and hear and how much he gets the crowd into it. And we kind of have a person to thank for that. I, um, I'm sure I've mentioned it before, but I have a film background and I had a documentary film class and D.A. Pennebaker, who the filmmaker who filmed Monterey Pop, was a guest speaker in the class and it was just cool to be able to listen to him, you know, talk about his craft to go up and, you know, shake the hand of this guy. And I was just like, thank you because our, you know, our obviously having missed the Monterey pop by, <laughs> by several years for Scott and I, <laughs> um, you know, that's our only understanding of what this was like was, you know, cause it was this guy who helped capture it on film and the Otis Redding performance. It's only five songs, you know, it's probably like 20 minutes, but it is like, I don't know. It's just insane to hear the amount of energy this guy had and what he manages to get out of the audience because in live performance, it is like a weird give and take between the band and the audience. And it's very difficult to describe. You kind of have to be there. And there's been times where you feel like, Oh, this is a really special moment. And everybody's like really in tune. And the band's obviously feeling the good energy of the audience. And, but even years and years removed, and, you know, not even being alive at the same time as Otis Redding, like the energy and enthusiasm of and just how powerful this guy is just like comes through. And it, like I said, it's it's thanks to this recording. So definitely, you know, check that out. It's 20 minutes of your time. It will be one of the most enjoyable 20 minutes you'll spend <laughs> in a day. Um, the first time I heard it, I picked up like this two disc Otis Redding anthology and the last five tracks on that were the 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 set that he played at Monterey Pop and it's just phenomenal and also um you know the the performances are up on YouTube you can look at the clips there uh the one one of the most iconic ones that stands out for me uh especially the way it's filmed is uh Otis Redding that there's like this bright spotlight in the background is Otis Redding is singing I've been loving you too long which is just like one of the greatest songs ever uh especially for any david lynch fans out there it's used in twin peaks the return to to great very to, very to great effect um <laughs> but it's it's just so amazing and moving and haunting especially the way it's filmed because the the spotlight is kind of in the camera and it's only blocked by Otis Redding kind of standing in front. So as he's moving around, like the light will kind of stream just straight into the lens of the camera. And it's just, I don't know, there's there's just something about it. I feel like I can't describe it well and I don't want to describe it well because I want you to go, go watch it. <laughs> um, but it's just, yeah, it's just amazing. And I mean, we talked a lot about uh, how how great the recordings are and and I feel like the the live performances are definitely something we didn't want to leave out of this episode and and encouraging everyone to not only listen to albums like the immortal Otis Redding and the ones he did make while he was alive but also you know check out check out the live stuff because then you'll very much get a a better sense of just how captivating Otis Redding was <laughs> 
please visit our website at www.skippedonshuffle.com for more news about other episodes and our upcoming schedule. We are also on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Please visit skippedonshuffle.com for links to all of our social media pages.